1: I'm Arzoba, and welcome to the History of Sakatvelo, Georgia. I'm your host, Roberto, and this is Myth 5, Varchag and His Sons. This tale comes out of the Nart Sagas, and I would like to give credit to Walter May for his translation, and to John Colarusso and Tamirlan Salbia for their edits to modernize the work. I also want to give credit to Sylvan for their amazing art. Varkag and his sons come from the Nart Sagas, which are a series of stories from the Ossetian culture found in both North Georgia and Southern Russia along the Caucasus mountain range. Before people start yelling at me and telling me that the Ossetians aren't Georgian, I will say this. The Ossetians are found throughout Georgian territory, mainly in the Russian-occupied South Ossetia. This means they are part of Georgia and Georgia's history, and we have seen them multiple times throughout our narrative and will continue seeing them. So, a certain history and stories will be covered on this show. But for now, sit back and enjoy the tale and remain with us for a discussion about the story with Brendan. Part 1 Varkhag and his sons. Chapter 1. The birth of Akshar and Akshartag. Varkhag was in those days among the eldest of the Narts. To him were born two sons, twins. One came at the first cock-crow, the other before the morning star, Bonvarnon, had appeared in the sky at the second cockrow. The rays of the risen sun shone into the heart of Varkag, and he felt how dear to him were those two newborn babes. So that the day of their birth should bring the newcomers happiness, Varkag prepared a feast consisting of game caught in the hunt to regale his guests. Varkag invited the heavenly smith Kurdalagon, and the ruler of the deep seas Donbetir, and highly esteemed Narts Bora and other were called to that rich feast. Kurdalagan took a fancy to Varkag's son and named them so, the elder he called Akshar, and the younger Akshartag. Why did he give them these names? Speaking of a brave man, one says Akshad. The first brother was such a young fellow, and so received that name. But the second brother was even bolder, and so he was called Akshartag, which means bravest. To celebrate the naming of the newborns, Kurdalagon presented Varkai with a magic flute, which he had forged himself from tempered steel at his heavenly forge. The Narts placed this wonderful flute on the festive tables, and it began to play on its own accord, merrily and resoundingly. Take a cup of mead, take a cup of mead, drink it down indeed to please God. For seven days and seven nights, Varkag's guests feasted, and when the feast was over, Kurdalagon leapt onto the crest of a fiery storm cloud, and like wide-winged Pakunza, flew off on it to the heavens. Donbatir changed into a pearly, fiery fish and disappeared into the sea depths. The Narts, as befits those who spend their life on campaign, went off on a dangerous expedition. Akshar and Akshartha grew with each passing hour, and one day they grew two inches. In a night, a whole hand's breath, they were a mischievous pair. They made for themselves bows and arrows, and there was not a bird who could fly over their heads. They shot them down immediately, and they fell like stones to the earth. The whole world soon knew that the Nart Varkag had two gallant grown-up twin sons, Akshar and Akshartag. Chapter 2, Akshar's Sword Akshar and Akshar Tag soon grew up, and there came the day when they decided to go on a quest for a year. They made all their gear ready and set off on the road. They came to a place where the road divided in three, and agreed thus. We shall take one side road each, and the middle road will be our place of meeting. Let us both put one of our own arrows we have beneath this stone by the wayside. Whoever returns, let him come to this stone and see whether his brother's arrow is still there. Akshad and Akshartag then parted, traveling different roads. A year passed by, and Akshartag returned to the agreed spot, lifted the stone, and saw that Akshar's arrow still lay there, covered with moss and mold. Akshartag was at once disturbed. What had happened to his brother? He set out at once on the road that Akshad had taken. He traveled a long time through forest and field and over mountains, and toward evening he came to the Black Ravine. There he stayed for the night and saw in his dream that his brother had been taken prisoner. At once, Akshar jumped on and went onward. Again, he traveled all day, and toward evening he came to the white ravine. He rested once more for the night in a forest grove, and had only just fallen asleep when he saw the same troubled dream as on the first night. Again, he jumped up, and still full of alarm, he went onward. From morning till evening he traveled, and now before him he saw the red ravine. But how could he not help feeling hungry after such long travels? He could not sleep, but went in search throughout a grove, hoping to find some wild game to shoot. Suddenly, he saw a lake, and on the shore stood a tent. In the tent, from time to time, some strange, incomprehensible light appeared, and then disappeared. That tent is put there for some purpose, he thought. Maybe I can find here what has happened to my brother. He stepped a little nearer to this tent and began to peer in through the flap. He saw that inside the tent an iron door had been set in the floor, which opened and closed by itself. Each time it opened, a light also glowed from somewhere in the tent. Akshar Tag was amazed. What kind of wonder was this? The next time the light shone, he loosed an arrow in its direction. Straight away, he then heard a piercing cry. (coughs) Such a shriek that the trees bent down, and the lake sieved up and hurled waves ashore, and the beasts sleeping for the night in the grove grew frightened, and began to run away, bumping into one another in their haste. A little time passed, and all grew still again. The lake gathered its waves together, the trees straightened up, and the beasts quietly returned to their rest it began to grow light. As soon as dawn broke, Akshar Tag saw an old woman come out of the tent. She had one crooked eye, quite sightless, and in the other sighted eye stuck the arrow he had shot. She was moaning and groaning. Akshar Tag came nearer and saw that she carried his brother's scarf in her hand. He asked straight away, "'Who are you, old woman? How do you come to have my brother's scarf in your hand?' "'Ah, young man.' I don't know who you are, but if you call yourself Akshar's brother, then you are my brother as well. I am one of the Narts. When he set out for the underwater dwellers, the Bissanags, he left me his scarf and said sternly, Take care of it, my sister. If blood appears on it, that means I am in difficulties. But if no blood appears, then you need not worry about me. I have just seen blood on the scarf." That means that he is in great trouble, your brother Akshad, and he has probably fallen into the hands of the Bisanogs. Now, I have been blinded, and I don't know what I can do. Is there no remedy that would give you back the sight of one eye, at least? Asked Akshartag. If someone gathered some drops of morning dew and mixed them with Sdo's milk, and sprinkled it on my wound, then I would see. Akshartag ran off into the forest, caught a young deer and milked it, and mixed with it some fresh dew drops. Then he gently removed the arrow from the woman's eye, and poured into the wound the prepared mixture. She at once began to see again, and was happy to make out Akshartag. "'How do you think my brother fell prisoner to the Bissanags?' Akshartag then asked her. "'I shall tell you all, from the beginning, as far as I know it. "'The Bissanags went out hunting, and suddenly the gates of the sky opened, "'and out fell a piece of heavenly ore, right on the head of the eldest Bissanag, "'and passed right through him. "'The Bissanags carried off that piece of heavenly ore with them, below the water. Aksha heard about this, and thought that he would take this piece of ore from them. When he came, they must have surrounded him, tied him up, and carried him off as a prisoner with them. Just today, I was making plans about what to do, when because of your arrow, I was unable to carry on. But to whom among the Narts do you belong? And why do you call yourself one of our women? To whom are you sister? Then afterward, explain why, when I looked at your tent at night, there appeared and disappeared a strange light. I am Varkhag's sister, but I have lived here for a long time. My husband shared a table with the sun, and the sun presented him with a white stone. The stone I hung around my neck every night, and it lighted up my path. The light you saw was the light from it. Where, then, has your husband gone?" inquired Akshartag. The old lady pointed to the iron door, lying in the ground. That door leads to an underground cave, and at evening, on Saturdays, it opens. The Bissanaks come to catch at least one person living on Earth's surface. If they don't succeed, one of them dies. So, it was that they once took my husband, but what happened to him, I do not know. Just as I do not really know what has happened to Akshad. Akshar Tag and the old woman waited till Saturday evening came. When the door to the underworld opened, Akshar Tag put his shoulder under it to prevent it from closing then gave a great heave and tore it out, together with its hinges, and flung it aside. After that, he and the old lady went into the cavern and saw with horror that a man lay bound with arms and legs spread out, and from his beard and mustaches was woven a rope-like ladder that stretched up to the surface. There he is, my husband, the master of my head, cried his wife. Akshartag drew his sword and cut the man's bonds, and then cut short his beard and whiskers. The man stood up and thanked Akshartag. Then they went together into the cavern and suddenly saw Akshad standing as though he had been crucified with his back to the cavern wall while the Bissanags were shooting arrows at him and they began attacking him with their swords seeing this Akshartag fell on them in a fury and began to hew them down while Varkag's sister and her husband chased those who fled and killed them thus Akshartag freed his twin brother "'Akshad, you and your husband go along home together, "'and Akshad Tag and I will come to you later,' said Akshad. "'The husband and wife went off together, "'while the brothers looked for the storeroom "'where the Bisogs kept the oar. "'They found this heavenly ore at last "'where the Bisanogs had hidden it "'and carried it off to the Smith of the Gods,' Khudalagon, and from it he made for Akshar two-edged sword. Such a sword it was that from a single blow, any stone or any metal would fall apart, while the blade itself was never blunted. When Akshar and Akshar Tag descended to earth again from Kurdalagon's forge, they found the Bissanag chief, Karamag, waiting for them with more men. Akshar Tag at once engaged them in a furious battle, but Karamag stuck Akshar Tag such a cunning blow that he fell senseless to the ground, and his sword dropped from his hand. Just then, one of the servants of Don Betird appeared and whispered to Akshad, SMEAR YOUR BLADE WITH THIS FISH OIL AND YOU WILL OVERCOME YOUR ENEMIES! Akshad at once smeared his sword with the fish oil, and then when Karamag raised his sword to strike him, Akshard parried the blow, and Karamag's blade shattered into tiny fragments, like little tin tacks. Akshard went on to slay all his Biseneg opponents to the last one, the Donbetir servant, who advised Akshard how to avoid defeat, then carried Akshard Tog off to the Milky Lake and bathed him in its healing waters, where he immediately recovered consciousness. The word about Akshard's wonderful sword flew round among all the Narts. They all gathered to see and stood in amazement before that wondrous weapon. Since that time, whenever difficulties faced the Nards, Akshard went into battle against their enemies in the vanguard with his wonder-working sword. For its invincible durability, it received the name akshar which means Akshard's sword. After Akshard's death, his eldest son inherited his sword. Since then, it has been a Nart custom that the eldest son receives his father's sword and the youngest son inherits his horse. Chapter 3 The Apple of the Narts An apple tree grew in the Narts orchard. Like heavenly azure, its blossoms shone, but each day only one apple grew ripe on it. That was a golden apple, and it gleamed like fire. It had also life-giving powers, and cured people from all kinds of diseases, and healed all kinds of wounds. Only from death could it not save one. In the course of a day, such an apple ripened, but during the night someone always stole it. The Narts went on guard in turn every night, but nobody ever saw anyone stealing the apple, though it continued to disappear each night. It became Barkhag's turn to stand on guard in the orchard. He called his sons Akshad and Tag and said to them, "'Go, my sons, and protect the golden apple!' All my hopes are set on you. If you do not preserve it, then you know what will happen. All three Na tribes will gather here and matin from each of the three families. One of them will cut off your heads, the second will cut off your arms, And the third will stick on a stake the head of one of you and the arm of another, and I shall remain alone in my old age with none to protect me nor feed me. Have no fear, father. We shall guard the golden apple tree, his sons replied. Get along, then. I know that you are afraid of nothing. Only I myself am afraid that you should not guard the apple well, said their father. The fence around the orchard was of reindeer antlers, and it was so high that not even a bird could fly over it. The brothers sat under the magic tree and had their supper, and the younger one, Akshar Tag, said to the elder one, Akshad, ''We shall stand guard by turns. You lie down now and sleep till midnight. From midnight, it will be your turn to watch.'' Akshad agreed, lay down, and slept. He awoke at midnight and said to his brother, ''May God forgive me, Akshar Tag, but have I not overslept?'' No, it is not midnight yet. Sleep on a little, said Akshar Tag. Akshar was glad to hear that and slept again. Then, at about the hour when night begins to change to day, some kind of bird, it seemed, flew to the tree. The apple was suddenly lit up and Akshar Tag saw a dove near the magic apple. She plucked the apple by its stem and Akshar Tag straight away shot an arrow at her. So that half of her wing fell to the earth, and the dove, covered in blood, flew lower unevenly and let the apple fall to the ground. Then Tag woke up Akshad. "'You see these drops of blood?' he said to the brother. "'I shot a dove in our apple tree. She flew off, and see? Here is half her wing. Very low.' "'Only just above the earth she flew, leaving a trail of blood. "'I must follow that track. I must catch her or die in the attempt. "'There's nothing else left for me to do.' Akshartag carefully bound up his victim's half-wing in a silken handkerchief "'and put it in the bosom of his coat. "'And when it grew quite light, he said to Akshad, "'I am off to seek that wounded bird. What do you say to that?' "'I shall come with you wherever you go,' replied Akshad. "'So the brothers followed the bloody trail that led them to the seashore.' It goes on into the water, said Akshad, And Akshar Tag replied, I shall go to the bottom of the sea. Wait for me here. If the waves throw up bloody foam on the shore, that means I am no longer in the land of the living, and you had better return home. If the waves throw up white foam, then wait for me here. Wait for just one year. Very well, answered Akshad, and remained on the shore. Then Akshar Tag pulled up the ends of his overcoat and stepped into the water, and down to the bottom he went. Chapter Four: The Beauty Zerasha. After a long descent through the dim waters, Akshartag found himself in the house of Don Betir. The walls of the house were made of mother of pearl. The floor was of blue crystal, and the morning stars shone through the ceiling. Akshartag stepped across the threshold. And there he saw seven brothers sitting, along with two sisters, one more beautiful than the other, like gold glittered and gleamed the maiden's fair hair. Good day to you, said Akshatag as he greeted them. May happiness ever fill your home. May you be blessed by a kindly fate, one of the seven brothers and one of the pair of sisters replied. They rose and made a place for him to be seated. The three who were older than he sat on one side, the four who were younger on the other. They looked akhlatog up and down and said none like you has ever been in our home before and never will be again we should be joyful at your coming and greet you with honour but we cannot do so now since we are in mourning god save you from all sorrow what woe is troubling you the eldest brother answered him so We have three sisters and one of them has been going into the nart's orchard and it has ended badly for her there each day a golden apple grows and ripens at night our sister changed into a dove and stole it away more than once we told her that the nart youths were bold and no birds dare fly over their heads so don't go after any more apples but she did not listen to us the narts akshar and akshar tag were guarding the apple tree last night and wounded our sisters fatally May they cut each other down with their swords. They had only just pronounced this name when a groan was heard from the adjoining chamber. Who is that groaning? inquired Arxartag. It is our Zerasha, of whom we have told you, they replied. Is there any remedy that will cure her? asked Akshartag. There is such a remedy, answered one of the brothers. If anyone can put back the missing half of her wing in its proper place, she will be cured, and her life will be saved. If not, she will surely die. How would you reward anyone who cured your sister? We should give our beloved sister Zerasha to him in marriage. The gods have decreed that only s- such a one should she marry. Then Akshartag boldly told the brothers the truth. I am Varkag's son, Aksharthag is my name. The half-wing of your sister is in my keeping. I was the one who wounded her, and I will be the one to cure her. Bring her in here, I beg you." The brothers' faces all lit up with happiness, and they answered Akshartag, "'Our sister Zirasha is seriously ill, and we cannot move her out here to you. You yourself must cross the threshold of her chamber.' Then the young Nart stepped across the threshold. A beautiful young woman was lying in bed, and her golden hair fell over her shoulders and down onto the floor. The sun was laughing on her face and the moon was shining upon her breasts. She turned toward Akshartag, and he could not help smiling with happiness. He took from his belt the silk handkerchief, and out of it he took the half-wing and laid it on Zarasha's wound. And straight away she became seven times more lovely than before. The seven brothers and her two sisters were all so glad, and they happily gave Zarasha to Akshartag as his bride. One day, then another, and so on for a week the wedding feast lasted for Akshartag and for Zarasha, the daughter of Don Betir. They fitted one another like the sun and the moon among their guests at the festive board day followed day Week followed week, Akshartag and his beautiful bride, Zirasha, lived in the underwater land of Donbatir. Then came the time when Akshartag remembered how his brother was still waiting for him, and he grew sad. He said to Zirasha, I cannot live here any longer. I must go to meet my brother and then return home. If you have a home of your own, then we must hasten there. It is not good for me to remain here any longer. She was already with child, and wished for it to be born in her husband's home, as custom demanded. In the hour of farewell, Zerasha took a strand of golden hair from her plate and bound it round herself and Akshartag, and at once they became two big fish, shining with scales of mother of pearl, and thus they swam up to the surface of the sea. In the dark forest, on the seashore, Akshat built himself a tent of animal skins and awaited news of his brother. Once he saw that the waves cast up white foam on the shore, and he was very glad. Alive and well, my brother will soon return happily to me. I shall go hunting for Wild Game, and maybe I shall be back in time for his return. So off he went to the hunt. Where are my two sons? Shall I never see them again? So said old Varkag, and grief bent his head, and his great power was broken. But the Nart youths were glad that Akshar and Akshar did not return, since they were always and everywhere so superior to them, and made them obey. They did not hesitate to mock Varkag, and made him always take the cattle out to pasture as their shepherd, to insult him. Varkag grew angry at this. More than once, he deliberately drove some of the cattle into the sea and drowned them, or prodded them over the edge of an abyss, and they broke their necks. He remained in the wilds, and did not go to the villages of the Narts, but all the same, he suffered more because of his absent sons. Akshar Tag and Zerasha came from the bottom of the sea and saw on the shore a tent made of skins. They looked inside, but Akshar was off hunting, and the tent was empty. When Zerasha entered the tent, all inside was lit up by the radiance of her face. Such a fine tent it was. And she said to Akshartag, I cannot leave this place until I have sat and rested here a while. Very well, replied Akshartag. You sit here, meanwhile, and I'll go and look for my brother. So, Akshartag went off to the forest to find his brother. Brother. In the meantime, his brother returned home to his tent, and so the two brothers missed each other. Chapter 5. The Death of Akshar and Akshar Tag. Akshar tag had been gone a long time when Akshad returned to his tent. When he entered he caught sight there of Zarasha and he said to himself, O oh, gods of gods, do not take away what happiness you have given us, neither on the road nor at home. How could I expect that Akshartag would not only return alive, but also bring his bride to my tent? Zarasha glanced at Akshad and mistook him for her husband. Those fair haired, tall, bright eyed, wide-shouldered twin brothers were as like as two peas, so much that even Mother Earth and the god in heaven could not distinguish one from the other. ''Why have you been so long away?'' asked Zarasha. Akshar did not answer. ''What is wrong with you?'' Don't you recognize your own wife? Did we not live a whole year together beneath the sea with Don Betir? Thus Akshad was convinced that before him sat his brother's wife. Zirasha, mistaking Akshad for her husband, gathered her things for that night and began to cling to him but saw at once that he turned away from her, distressed. The time came to lie down and sleep. Suddenly Akshad spread out his felt cloak and they lay on that, covering themselves with Tag's cloak. But so that there would be no intimacy between him and his brother's wife, Akshad drew his sword and placed it between himself and Zarasha. This so infuriated her that she, being deeply offended, rose from the bed and sat further away with a bitter, sad look on her face. Sometime afterward, toward morning, the tent flap opened and an in stepped Akshar Tag. He had shot a deer and had brought a tree, branches and all, to make a fire. When he caught sight of Zarasha sitting with an offended look on her face, and his brother sleeping under his cloak, jealousy crept into his soul. What if Akshar had taken advantage of his wife Zarasha? Why did she look so distressed? He took an arrow from his quiver and shot it up into the sky. Oh God, he prayed, let my arrow soar like two and return as one and pierce that place where he touched my wife. The arrow soared away and turned point downward and fell and struck Aksharthag's little finger, and immediately he died. Further distressed, Zirasha told Aksharthag all exactly as it had happened, and he was seized by despair. Because of him, and his suspicion, his innocent brother had died. He straight away drew his sword, and placing the hilt on his brother's breast and the pointed blade at his own heart, he leaned heavily forward upon his sword. The point pierced his breast, and thus Akshartag died. Zarasha's lament. And then Zarasha tore her hair, beat with her fist on brow and knees, scratched her cheeks, and cried in despair, Oh, woe is me! Black days are these. Because of me, brothers have died. Because of me, their blood was shed. She moaned and groaned, lamented, cried, and mountains echoed her woe overhead. Wild beasts in sorrow silent fell. On hearing her pitiful sad lament, her tears on blood-stained cheeks did swell. Went streaming, gleaming, never spent. Her sorrow floated like a cloud, above twin corpses as they lay. Her warm tears fell like a funeral shroud, but naught could wash her woe away. She sat between them till midnight came, above the corpse of Akshar the Bold. From midnight till morning, just as same. Above Akshartag his flesh grown cold. What shall I do with these poor dead men? Let ravens come, pick out their eyes? Let foxes come and gnaw at them? And tear their pallid cheeks likewise. I should make each of them a grave. But how can I do so alone? How bury them here, beside the wave, where all is stern, unyielding stone. Just then watched Hirji, a great spirit on a three-legged horse, and accompanied by a hunting hound, descended from the heavens to the earth. He then appeared before her and said, O Zerasha, son of suns, ornament of the universe, my lovely world, and the beauty of the earth, long since I have followed in your tracks, and here I see you in great sorrow. What has happened to you? How could I not be sorrowful? Replied Zarasha. I have been the cause of the death of these two brothers, and I do not know how I am going to bury them here. Oh, woman! Replied Vashtiri. I could, of course, bury them both. But if I do, then you must become my wife. Zirasha straight away answered, why should I not become your wife, after you have buried them? Hearing this, Washtirji slightly struck the earth with the handle of his whip, and the two bodies of the two brothers sank into a cavity in the ground. Then there arose a tomb of stones, united by mortar above their grave. Then above the risen tomb, a beautiful palace arose. Washtirji then turned to Zirasha and said, well, now all is accomplished, and we can go. Wait here a moment while I go and wash my face and hands at the seashore. How can I go with you like this? The blood has dried on my cheeks and fingers. So Zerasha answered him. Wastirji took her words as true, and off she ran to the seashore. She threw herself into the watery waves and sank below into her father's domain, the realm of Donbittir. Washtirji waited and waited, and what kind of thoughts and wishes did not run through his head? "'Where is that woman, then? The lovely Zirasha has disappeared. She has deceived me, Wastirji, and I shall not forget such deception. Just wait a while, and woe to your hearthstone,' swore Wastirji. "'In this world I may not be able to catch you, but how will you escape me in the land of the dead?' Wastirji flew into a fury, leapt on his three-legged horse, and called his hunting hound, and galloped off along the seashore to hunt." Chapter 6. The Birth of Urujmag and Khamis Zarasha lived beneath the waters in the home of her parents, the Donbeteers. When her mother knew that Zarasha was expecting a child, she said to her, Go now, my daughter, into the land of the Narts. Whoever is not born in their country, they will never recognize as their own. So the poor woman did as her mother had advised. With bowed head she set out on her long journey. Even if I reach a Nart village... "'Who will take me in?' she wondered. Soon she came to such a village. Zarasha went near the square, the meeting place of the respected Nart elders. As is incumbent upon a bride, she bowed her head, and did not turn her back upon the old men. The Nart elders were surprised. Who is she then? She showed us deep respect, as though she were one of our newlyweds. But all our young wives are here in the village. There are none who, according to the custom or because of some offense or the other, would go back to their parents' home to stay with them then the elders said to the young narts go to our women and tell them to find out who this young woman stranger is who comes as our guest so the young narts went to the nart woman and said to them listen young wives of ours well-mannered and silent before your elders ask this newcomer why she too is silent before us is she one of our brides you are respected older wives and mothers find out if she too is a respected mother and learn her name where she is from, and tell it to us. The young wives began to surround Zarasha and to question her, Who are you, and what are you? they clamored. But Zarasha did not answer, and thought to herself, If I tell them who I am, my answer will not be heard by the elders from my own lips, and may not be believed. Then the mothers, seeing that she did not answer the young wives, went up to her and asked her, Tell us, what brings you to the land of the Narts? Zarasha answered, Don't all ask me questions at once. If you wish to know who I am and where I come from, let one of you speak and I will answer. Then one of the most respected mothers took her to one side. My sunshine, tell me, what brings you here? They all trust me here in this village and you may trust me too. Then Zarasha glanced at the elderly mother and answered, It is awkward for me to even mention my name and where I come from. It is shameful for me to stand on Nart land before you young Nart wives and respected mothers. It is against custom to utter it before you, replied Zarasha. But there is no other way out for me, so despite that, I must tell it to you. My husband was Akshartag, and I beg you lead me only the ground floor of his tower, where the cattle live in winter. Then the woman told the young Narts, whose bride she was, and they repeated it to the elders, sitting in the village square. This woman comes to us from those relatives of ours, for whom we have been waiting for so long. The elders were glad to hear this news, and replied, Let it be so, then. If we have not heard from them so long, then nonetheless we shall learn from her what has happened to them. Only do not take her to old Varkhag's tower tower, but to the topmost chamber in Arkshartag's bastion. When Zerasha, standing nearby heard this, she said to the women, It is not fitting for me to be there. Soon will come the time when I shall show you a new shoot-off for your family. Meanwhile, it were better and quieter for me to not be at the top of the tall tower, but in the shady cattle stall below. So the woman led her to the stall below in the tower, and there she gave birth to twin sons, Urijmag and Khamis, they named them. Chapter 7 How Urishmag and Khamis found their grandfather, Varkhag. By day, two fingers, by night, a hand's breath grew her twin sons. But when they went out of doors for the first time from their home, and stood out on the street playing and shooting their bows, all of the Nart youngsters hid wherever they could from the whistling of arrows. At that time, Kulbadagush... A sent her only daughter to the spring to fetch some water. As soon as Khamis saw the girl, he shot an arrow at her, which smashed the jug to smithereens and tore her dress to pieces. Crying and sobbing bitterly, she returned home. What happened to you for goodness sake? Why did you return home so soon and where's the water I sent you for? That mischievous young devil Hamis shot an arrow at me and broke the jug to bits and tore my dress to rags. Her mother gave her another jug and warned her, Go again, my daughter, and don't come back without water. May the milk I fed you on as a babe fill you with some of my sharp words. If you can't answer back to such a young rascal, may you not have much luck in your life. The girl had only just stepped out of the house when Hamis again shot an arrow at her. How easy it is to test your strength out on me, shouted the girl. Any little bird of the forest is stronger than I, but if you are a bold young fellow... "'Better go and find your old grandfather, Varkag, who has wandered away, wandering after the Nart's cattle.'" Having heard these offensive words, both boys broke their bows and arrows in a frenzy, and hearing and shouting like highway thieves, they burst into their house and told their mother, "'We are going to the meeting place of the elders in the square. We have heard that our grandfather, Varkag, is still alive. We want to go and find him. The elders may tell us where he is.'" They arrived on the square, where elders from all three nart families gathered, and some of the younger narts too. Urijmag and Khami said, May fortune smile on your council. May it smile on you as well, was the reply. We have heard that our father's father, Varkhag, is still alive and pastures nart cattle. We beg you to show us where we may find him. Let some of the younger boys go with you and show you the way. The lads led them to the pasture. As Urishmag and Khamis strode toward their grandfather, the earth trembled beneath their feet and stones fell from the cliff sides. From far away, Varkhad heard the thunderous steps of Urishmag and his brother Khamis. What a wonder is this? thought he. Akshad and Akshartag are no longer in the land of the living, but it seems to me I hear them. Suddenly, he saw the youngsters and called... Hey, who are you then? They answered him back. We are the twin sons of Akshartag. Come nearer. Come nearer to me. Only by feeling your limbs and how you are made can I tell who you are and recognize you as my grandsons or not. Udijmah and Khamis came up to the old man and embraced him. And then Varkag fell silent while with the tips of his fingers he felt the wrist and knee joints. Tears began to flow from his eyes. My sons Akshat and Akshartag have perished, but I am happy that our breed has not passed away. Thus, he recognized his grandsons. Varkhag then led the youngsters back to his old tower. First, they climbed upstairs to the chambers at the top, but saw that they could not enter for all the rubbish accumulated there. Then one brother took a wooden shovel, and the other took a broom, and they cleared away the rubbish and swept the rooms. All was shining bright when they finished, and everyone saw that the tower was set Seven times more beautiful than before. Supporting their old grandfather by the armpits, let him out into the courtyard and they trimmed his shaggy hair and beard and whiskers. Then they stuck his staff into the rubbish outside and made him urinate on it and they saw that his stream arced upward. They gaped at each other in surprise and said one to the other, yes indeed! He's still quite young, our granddad. He can still work and manage to feed our mother. They escorted him back to the hearth, sat him on a stool and then said to him, we are son." Sons, and from now on, we shall live with you. While they were doing all this, Zerasha stayed in the upper part of Akshartag's tower. Now, having found their grandfather and put all things in order, they set off to meet their mother again. They took her with them to the old tower of their grandfather Varkag, and old Varkag, when he saw Zerasha, took her to be his wife. And that concludes part one of the Tale of the Narts Varkag and his sons. Please join us now for a discussion with Brendan, our editor. Gamarjoba, and welcome to the history of Sacardello, Georgia. This is Myth 5 Warcog and his sons, part 2. Thank you for coming on to the show today, Brendan.
0: Thank you, Roberto. I must say, it's really impressive hearing your podcasting voice in person. You have a very good, very good radio voice you're putting on there.
1: Oh, thank you. I try really hard once I'm in front of the mic. So today we are discussing Cog and his sons. I would like to give thanks to the artist Sylvan for letting me use their artwork. So that, thank you very much. Your artwork is great. And I love the fact that you did convert the Tale of the Narts into an actual comic strip. And that's all for Sylvan. So... Brendan, we both read Hell of the Narts. I want to know, what were your impressions of the book? So I have stuff to say.
0: I'm not fresh on it because I read it about a week ago. Um, I was just going over the introduction before, but I read about an hour a couple weeks ago. And when I was younger, I guess I was much more cynical. Like stories about like, families and all this emotional stuff and crying didn't affect me as much but yeah you, know, you know now i think one time to- i was just very struck by uh what a good job that the translators did here of presenting the emotional content of the stories because it is an extremely sad story we'll be talking about it soon but one thing that's been annoying me about Shota um, Rustavelli's Rostavelli. A Night in the Panther Skin, which is a famous Georgian epic poem, the national epic poem of Georgia's, just how much crying there is. There's just so much repetitive stuff about, oh, they cried so much. And here I think the translators did a better job of presenting the emotional content of the story that probably would have res- resonated more with the audience at the time, which I assume... I think in the introduction said it was a purely oral tradition until the 60s, I want to say.
1: Yeah, it was a purely oral tradition until somewhere around the 60s. And what actually is really nice about this is that I believe, this is just my opinion from for everyone else, that because it was such an oral tradition, you had to convey the emotions to the people because it's one of those things you just can't. Kind of read outright unless it's written down and a lot of times a lot of these stories were not written down even going with like the Ascendian tradition they kind of go forth and just kind of represent their culture through their stories and you can see a lot of the stuff they they kind of think about and stuff that they go through and just like their mentality just by reading these sagas through that is just very apparent throughout their culture so
0: yeah I mean one thing I noticed was just like with it's the case with a lot of myths and with a lot of sagas like the saga of the Volsungs it's in Norse mythology it's fundamentally a story about a particular family and that's the impression that I get with Warcog and its sons it's a story about Warcog and his sons. It's about the their family. I think we'll get more into that as we look at the introduction written by Vasily Abayos.
1: I read this book yesterday, because I and the day before, because I was re- literally recording this whole book for everybody. So what my thoughts were is, uh, I was actually quite impressed with how well developed the stories were, even though they were quite short. There was just a series of different stories which you would just find within the culture tradition of many different places so such as the greeks you know they had tales for each of their gods so they had kind of like you had like small descriptions of like here's some random stories of stuff that they did of their demigods their heroes who just kind of did different things but you don't have this whole long form explanation of everything that they did you you just find that a lot later once homer comes into play or once you start reading you know virgil's the aeneid or which is rome but or you start reading just even further on just in the argonauts with apollonius of rhodes and even then like you know you have you have euripides with medea and like you have all of these greek heroes that they show different formats but when you get down to the oral tradition you just have this one you you have parts of the the, the saga of this family. So you have part one is literally Warcog and his sons. It is setting up the whole fundamental of how did this start? How did the NART people start? And I think this is actually a really good segue to kind of start talking about how did the NART start with just kind of this whole premise that we have going on for us
0: now. All this information that I'm about to relate comes from the uh, introduction to the book by Vasily Ivanovich Abayev, who I believe it's explained in the preface to the book, that he was a Soviet historian and he was one of the first people to translate, write down, and analyze the tales of the Narts. Like we said earlier, it's a story about family, but it's specifically a legend about the origins of the Nart people and the Nart people and the Ascedians are sa- are the same as I understand it right
1: Yes they're exactly the same it is just a different name for themselves Narts are what they end up calling themselves a bit more but throughout time it's become more and more like Ascedian
0: Right yeah so I didn't I didn't take a course in Ascedian history unfortunately before I started this I just read I just read this book so I
1: didn't know we needed to have a history degree to uh, do all of this.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, thankfully, I have the ability to read. So I just sort of bypass all that. Anyway, so uh, Vasily Ivanovich Bayev, we'll just call it Bayev from now on, explains that the whole, all of the stories in this book, the Tales of the Narts, deal with four central cycles, which is the origins of the Narts, which is the first one we're talking about here, Warcog and his sons, Akshar and Akshar Tog. And then later, Ruzmag and Shitana form the second cycle. Then Soshlan form the third cycle and Latradz form the fourth cycle. And so today we're just dealing with Warthog and his sons and it tells the origins of the Nart people, specifically the family, which is called the Akshartag Keta, which is hard for me to pronounce because it's spelled Akshartag. And then they add K-E-T-T-A. So I have to stop and say Akshar Tag keta, every time.
1: Akshar Tag keta. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those fun ones. It's just it's just Akshar Tag is essentially the founder of this everything here.
0: Right. And so Abayev also writes that the story of Akshar and Akshar Tag, uh, he says, quote, I've argued that fundamentally behind the story of the twins Akshar and Akshar Tag lies the totemistic myth of the origin of the tribe as a wolf entirely analogous to the legend of Romulus and Remus. So what he's saying there is just as the story of Romulus and Remus find the mythological or legendary foundation of the Roman culture, Akshar and Akshar Tag form the mythological and legendary foundations of the Ascetian culture. And he even points out that the word Warkag in ancient Assetian simply means wolf.
1: Yeah. And I would also like to point out to kind of tie it back more to our podcast is george's name also technically refers back to the wolf because if as i mentioned back way back in episode one the whole gorgia Gurgan is also from an old persian word meaning wolf so it's like you have this whole caucasus region you have a lot of these origin stories from different regions such as a caucasus essentially referencing to a wolf being kind of like the totemic forebear of everything
0: right so this very ties uh very neatly back into the first episode. So he also notes, the Nards descended from the daughter of the water god, Zarash Shah, which is another difficult name to pronounce. And Abayev speculates that the Ossetian Alans, I don't think he explains what the Alans are. I think it's it's another word for just people.
1: It's literally another word for Ossetian. Okay. You have the Ossetians, you have the Nards, you have the Alans. Yes, it's just kind of different ways to refer to them. Just the same way I do in my shows. Like, oh yeah, the Iberians, the Kartveli, you know, the Colchians, just different names throughout history. So the Alans came after essentially, there was a place called Alanya for the kingdom of Alanya for quite a while. And that is what that, what that refers to.
0: Right. Anyway, and so he mentions that in the story, of course, Zarashashah is the daughter of the people of the sea. I forget if they're deities. Exactly. You'll have to remind me.
1: They're just another nart. Well, they're not even narts. They're just another like race of people from that area, is what I could tell from the reading. I might be wrong, but from what I can tell from reading this, they were just another people of the area who just live in the sea.
0: Oh wait. Well, a says right here that Zurashisha is meant to be a water goddess. So he also so he mentions there's two things. Is mythologically the nart people are descended from the wolf and from water deities or they're associated with water deities.
1: So that that explains a lot more, shows how much care I put into reading the introduction.
0: Oh well it's good because I read it. So don't worry. Well as long as we're on the topic, did you want to mention anything about the introduction that struck you?
1: I mean in relation to Akshar and Akshartag, it's essentially there's not much there other than the fact that you have these twins that you find in like Roman and Greek mythology. You know, you have Rom- Romulus and Remus castor and pollux and you essentially you just have this sense of twins just kind of being influenced by all of these people so it's just kind of interesting to see how you have the wolf essentially being a thing that's very that occurs very often throughout mythology as well as also having twins kind of being the forebears of your area so i know castor and pollux were in jason and the argonauts as well and then in india you have the ashvins also so it's just another motif that you have of just like Twins kind of appearing and kind of being forebears for a people, and one of them always has to die somehow.
0: I believe Castor and Pollux. One of the Castor and Pollock twins is killed somehow. If, if, are they killed in Jason and the Argonauts? I forget.
1: I don't think they killed in Jason and the Argonauts, but I know they're the sons of that wind god.
0: Yeah, I think they're sons of Boreas.
1: Yeah, they're the sons of Boreas. Shows how much potential we Peter own show.
0: I mean. How long ago did we do that? Come on. We're not
1: quite a while back. It's been a few months. We took a break.
0: <laughs> yeah, the thing—the twins thing was really interesting to me because I also, besides the examples of uh, Romius and Remus, Castor and Pollux, and the Ashvins of Hindu mythology, this also shows up in uh, the story of Apollo and Artemis. And this also is a good segue into another interesting thing I noticed about Akshar and Akshartag is. One thing they have in common with other stories across Greek and Roman and Norse mythology is not prodigy, um, precociousness of growing up instantly. So Akshar and Aksha Tag and the story, they seem to... Grow up instantly. They take like they grow up within like a year.
1: No, they grow up within days. Actually, within days, and like that's actually something which leads us right into the birth of Akshar and Akshatog, which is the first bit of the story. Um, and like they essentially, from what I could see, is they were literally born, and within like hours, they're they're already growing like essentially super quickly. And I'm like, how is this happening so quickly already? It's like and every, and then they do things in increments of a year as well, which I thought was also interesting.
0: Yeah. So the quote here is, Akshar and Akshata grew with each passing hour. In one day they grew two inches, in a night a whole hand's breadth. They were a mischievous pair. They made for themselves bows and arrows, and there was not a bird who could fly over their heads. And of course, if you've heard the story, you would know that their prowess with bows and arrows is major plot element, which makes sense because the Ascetians are a nomadic uh, horse people the way um, a bio describes them. And so continuing on with this thing about growing up instantly, and this also happens with Apollo and Athena. I think the story goes that either Apollo or, or Ar- sorry, not Apollo and Athena, Apollo and Artemis, I forget the name of their mother, but she was a Titan. Their father was Zeus and said that as soon as one was born, the other assisted their mother in delivering their younger twin. And another example of this is Athena was said to emerge fully formed from zeus's skull and the olympians were all said to have emerged as a full adults from the uh stomach of cronus when he vomited them up and hercules as an infant strangled two serpents that were sent to his crib by hera oh, sorry not hercules heracles uh i'm sure some people in the audience are going to be mad i said Her- hercules instead of heracles the final example the half Top of my head came from Norse Mythology. I don't know if this is in the prose or poetic Edda. I haven't read either, which I plan to change soon. But Thor's sons, Magni and Modi, I believe are also meant to be twins. But if not, they still have the precociousness aspect of it. Because there's a story where Thor went out to fight a stone giant. And when he killed him in one blow with Mjolnir, his hammer, the giant fell on him. And even Thor, who as strong as he is to wield his hammer, he still needs a magic belt that like doubles his strength so he can wield it. And he still can't get the giant off. But one of his sons, either Magni or Modi, I forget which, I think it was Magni, walks over and he's not even supposed to be a day old at this point, although he's older in other stories. He just flips the stone giant off of him that Thor could not even move and eventually one of whichever one did that is said to eventually inherit Mjolnir because he doesn't even need Thor's magic belt to hold it. He's that that strong. So that's another uh, motif that you see in these stories that you can find throughout a lot of other myths throughout human culture. Yeah,
1: and I think it's kind of um, just overall it's like even with in the premise of Akshar and Akshar Ta because I'm not great with mythology. I just read the stuff that I like. You can kind of tell like they grew up within like because the the quote. End- here that you have in the book is that the whole world soon knew that the Nart Varakhog had two gallant-grown-up twin sons, Akshar and Akshar Tag, but it does not say how long it took for them to grow up. Except you see that they essentially grow within a whole hands by a whole hand within, in a night. So it's like, it's a few days before they're grown up. So like these kids are like, you can, you can kind of tell why they make some stupid decisions as they go on. Cause they're not old enough to make these smart decisions essentially. Right. Which I think, you know, and speaking of smart decisions, I think it's a good time to head over to the next part of the War Sons is Akshar's sword.
0: Yeah. I thought that story was really interesting because and it's an example of a explanatory story. I mean, you've probably, a lot of people have heard things as kids of like why leopards have spots. As a kid, I had a book, I think we still have it, that my uh, dad has of African tales. And there's one story about how bird got his spots because he rolled around in a campfire and got white ash on his coat. But so it's an explanatory story in that sense. But it's also one that justifies the particular, I guess you could call it social regime, the Asedians, because it. Strikes me, it seems to me like like many cultures throughout human history, although certainly not all of them, it's not patrilineal, but it's the term for the oldest son inherits everything.
1: Primogeniture.
0: Yeah, primogenitor. So it's a story that not only explains the tradition of primogenitor, the tradition of the oldest son inheriting everything is simultaneously explained and justified here. So if somebody, you know, a younger son, a younger brother that got a little too big for his britches said, oh, why? Can't I have father's sword? Why do I need his stupid horse? Well, they would go back to the story and say, well, um, the founder of our culture established this tradition by saying, after Akshar's death, his eldest son inherited his sword. Since then, it has been Nart custom the eldest son receives his father's sword. And the youngest son, his horse.
1: Okay, but my question is I mean, we're, I don't even care if we jump around in the stories, but Akshar doesn't have a kid, as far as we know. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, just kind of since we're on the topic of primogeniture and all that, Akshar does not have a kid. There's a reason they call it the Akshar Togbek uh, Katar. The Akshar Togbek Katar. Yeah. This is yeah, so like basically Akshar Tog is you know who is essentially the founding drop of his family, but it's still Warcog. It's which is something we'll get into later episodes, or just later readings of the Nart Sagas. But Akshar doesn't have a child to kind of give things to, as far as we're told. Now that could be a different story, but I feel like that would have been a big thing if Akshar got married, because we know Akshar Tog did get married. So that's so does Akshar Tog
0: suddenly inherit everything at this point then? I suppose so. I mean, if I recall correctly, Akshar Tag kills his brother and then kills himself, and then the only one left is in
1: some renditions, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, mythology is inconsistent. It depends on who's telling the story. But in this particular story, yeah.
1: And the story reread.
0: Yeah, Akshar Tag kills his kills Akshar and then himself. So the only, so I guess Zarashisha gets all of it then.
1: Yeah, sounds like that's what happens. But yeah, so like in Oxar Sword, essentially, just Oxar and Tag decide to go journey around the world. They come to a crossroads and they're like, let's split up, but we're going to leave arrows under this boulder. Let's meet back in a year, because it's always a year in the Nart sagas somehow. And Akshar Tog comes back a year later, but Akshar hasn't returned. So he sets off on Akshar's path and finds a tent, which is going to bring in my next point is he sees this weird light coming through and he just shoots an arrow into the tent.
0: Yeah, I, I sort of read that as, like you said, a uh, an example of Akshar's immaturity. Wait, is this Akshar or Akshar Tag?
1: Akshar Tog shot an arrow into the tent.
0: Right. So it's an example of their immaturity. You can always find the values of a society couched within their stories. And part of that is the praise for war and valor in battle. At the very beginning of the story, I believe it says... Okay, well, somewhere it says that the Assetians or the Narts are the most valorous and bravest and most skillful in battle. And of course Akshar and Akshar Tag respectively mean brave and the bravest. And I read this thing about well, it's probably a story about solving with problems with violence. Cause this happens three times. And each time they accidentally hurt one of their own family members. The final time it ends in someone's death.
1: Like the second time they're guarding something. So that that makes sense to me. Oh yeah
0: yeah The second time they harm Zorashishab, but she does end up later marrying Akshartak, which we'll cover. But the, you know, it's violence shooting arrows specifically is used in this inciting incident in three of these stories. They shoot somebody, find out they have a reason to regret it, and then have to go do something in order to remedy their mistake he shoots his aunt
1: in the eye she's blind she's already blind in one eye
0: yeah and she, they, yeah and they have to go through all this rigmarole to go into the woods and find
1: morning dew and drops of morning dew and doze milk and they have to like get like herbs and like mm-hmm. rub into her eye to like heal her eye up yeah and it's like i don't know i just found it kind of funny we're just like yeah oh interesting weird light coming from here what could that be Joink, shoots an arrow. And it's like, oh, my eye. And I'm like, mm-hmm. Akshartag, what the heck are you doing?
0: Like, think before you do things. Yeah, so I thought I thought the uh, attitude towards violence in the story is really just really interesting because they simultaneously sort of praise and what's the opposite of praise? Praise and scold the storytellers sort of implicitly both praise and scold Akshar and talk for how good they are at violence because they you know associate their names with good things the brave and the bravest it's presumably referring to battle or hunting but they always tend to find ways to get them into trouble because of their ostensibly good qualities so uh, I re- i read that as sort of the storytellers warning people like don't use violence all the time to solve every problem because sometimes you might shoot your aunt in the eye. Yeah, I
1: feel like it's one of those things it's like you have to make it super apparent that they're like being dumb because it's like, yeah, like you don't don't shoot things because you might cause more problems than you can solve. But then, you know, he fixes his aunt's eye up and then she's like, oh, you know, my husband's stuck down there and your brother's also down there. And I have this magic scarf that tells me if your brother's in danger. Oh, look, it's bleeding. So he must be in danger. And then, like, you know, they go down into this, like, I think they have to wait a few days for, like, the doorway to be able to open to the Bissinog's lair. And as they climb down, they're climbing down on her husband's beard, which somehow just became so long that it's a, a ladder now. And then they get to the bottom and they cut the guy's beard off and save him. And I'm like...
0: I just you to get back to the top
1: now. Don't ask questions. It's a myth.
0: Don't ask questions. And then the solution is uh kill everyone.
1: Yeah, the solution to the story is kill everyone. And then Ak- they find Akshar at the end of the place and they free him and they're like, "Oh, is like, "Oh, I found this ore that I thought would be really cool to make into a sword. So let's go get that ore and get the heck out of Dodge and go to this like this god of forge uh, like blacksmithing. Who's also the person who named him, uh, Kurdalagon, and to make him a sword, and then the sword gets made within a few days, and then the Bissinogs come back out and they're like, We want revenge for killing everybody. And you know, they they can't even win the battle until they have some random traitorous Bissinog say, hey, pour fish oil all over your sword. Because, you know, and then once you start fighting, and then they start fighting, and the sword of the head Bissanong shatters, and Akshar kills the guy. So it's because Akshar is, you know, he's the head brother. He gets the cool thing, But, like, Akshar Tog is the hero of this saga part, for sure. Because Akshar Tog is the one who starts everything. He's the one who does everything. is just kind of like, I'm here for the ride. I get my cool fight scene, and then I'm out.
0: Right, yeah. And then it just struck me the bizarre, you mean the... The bizarreness of any myth or legend is always apparent. It's this Don Batier servant, Don Batyr deities, I believe, whisks Akshartag off to the Milky Lake so he can bathe them in its healing waters where he immediately recovered consciousness. And I don't think they even mention a horse anywhere in the story. So how they decided that there's a real plot hole why the youngest son gets the the father's horse. Yeah, and
1: I'm like... So, yeah, that was basically one thing. I was like, okay, cool. I know why the oldest gets a sword now, because he's the one who beat the the oldest brother. Is the one who beat the bad guy. Cool. But where did the horse come from? I don't see any horses anywhere in this story.
0: Yeah. Horses are probably not mentioned. There's probably some uh, version of the story.
1: Well, there probably is, but this is a version we have.
0: Yeah so yeah if you heard a different version of the story please enlighten us where please do where on earth this horse is coming in on yes tell us about the horse guys tell us about the horse
1: (laughs) um and then like i think it's, it's time for us to kind of continue on to the next story the apple of the narts which is essentially what sets up the whole ending and it's also like the shortest story in here
0: Yeah, it's also one of my favorite stories because I really like the love story between Zirashashah and Akshay Tag. But first, I just want to briefly point out Golden Apples of Immortality show up in Heracles. Yeah, Heracles' story, they show up in a Jewish tradition with the story of Adam and Eve. Although I think the Golden Apple thing might be a later invention than when that story was originally conceived, which... Probably means that it has its origins in Mesopotamian mythology because pretty much everything, all of your stories have their roots in Mesopotamian mythology in one way or another uh, a lot of the time. Although um, I think somewhere it's mentioned, uh, I might have even read this on Wikipedia, but I couldn't pull so I couldn't pull up the exact source. But I think in this particular instance of including a golden apple of immortality might be as a result specifically of Greek influence on Assyrian culture. Oh, for
1: sure, because the Greeks were totally in the area, like, without a doubt. Right. <laughs> they had things there forever we've
0: covered this yeah
1: we covered this a lot
0: yeah, we cover this a lot.
1: If you're at this point in the podcast, you know the influence is there.
0: <laughs> yeah, and Golden Apples of Immortality show up again in Norse mythology, although I'm not sure, I couldn't validate this, but I wonder if there's also, again, maybe some kind of cross-cultural influence there. But uh, to put it briefly, in Norse mythology, the Aesir gods eat Golden Apples of Immortality to maintain their youth, and there's a story about Loki being forced to trick the goddess to guards them into giving them up. And then the a forced Loki to go get them back again. Yeah, Golden Apples of Immortality, again, that's something that shows up all over all over the place. Also, one thing I, I just had on my notes here I wanted to touch on briefly is how many their stories are about either going underground or underwater. And I think Abayev talks about this. But as we know, in this story, Akshart and Akshartag are forced to pursue this injured bird to a uh underwater people who are called the Donbatir, I think. Yeah, the Donbatir. Yeah, so they're forced to pursue this injured bird underwater into this underwater kingdom, I guess you could call it. And that's where he meets Akshatag, meets his future wife, the water goddess Zarashisha. Zarashisha, again, this is difficult to pronounce because it there's two sh sounds. So I was going calling her like Zarashisha in my head when i was reading this but roberto just explained it's probably like Zerash shah something like that
1: Zerash yeah like you just have a longer sounding sh sound i guess Zerash or Zerash shah i've been saying Zerash because that way you still get both sh sounds at the end but because you can hear it like Zerash shah i'm saying it both so i don't know it's, it's language language is weird at the point You can read it yourself.
0: Anyway, there are quite a lot of stories about going underground or underwater, which again is not uncommon in many other cultures. For one, I think of, there's a story of Orpheus. There's several stories of Greek heroes going to Hades, which is the uh, underworld of the afterlife. Orpheus does this and also retrieves his wife, I believe. And Odysseus, or Ulysses, as he's known to the Romans, also does that in order to uh, talk to a dead prophet.
1: Yeah, so in this story... Depending on how you see it, like, he goes after the injured bird, which is ends up being Zarasha, who can transform into a bird or a fish. And in doing so, he has to go underwater, because the bird just goes underwater.
0: Just a side note, that bird, it's the swimming fish from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Rankin Bass, uh, TV special.
1: Yeah. So, it, literally, it says here, how Akshar gets to the bottom of the water is... Then Akshartag pulled up the ends of his overcoat and stepped into the water, and down to the bottom he went. But one thing I did like was the fact that the artist Sylvan, in their comic for the Golden Apple, is they actually have Akshartag, like, splitting the water open and then going down, which I thought was a lot cooler. I'm actually going to link the whole chapter in, into my website, and I'm going to put up some pictures as, like, the podcast picture. For, for the episode picture, I mean. Um, So I just just like their art so much. And so I'm going to put that up on the website so you can read it and put links there. Make sure you check all their work out. They're great. They have other stuff too. But yeah, no, he just goes down there. And then like, apparently they have, Zarasha has like seven siblings. Um, And then like, you know, three sisters, four brothers or seven brothers, two sisters. And each sister is more, much more beautiful than the other, which I don't know how you can kind of compare that. And then Zarash is supposed to be the most beautiful of them all. Oh man, they have more siblings than I do.
0: That's
1: <laughs> that's weird. You just play one, but still. So they literally go down, and actually seven two sisters. No, oh, no, it's about right. It's about the same as I do. So actually, never mind. Same amount. So then he kind of goes in, and they're like, "Oh, what? What's? Why are you guys crying?" And they're like, "Oh, my sister's been injured. You know, and we're, it is because of Akshar Tag. We're gonna curse Akshar and Akshar Tog and the rest of their family." You know, I hope he dies Worries. I hope they kill each other. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, oh, okay. That's, that's mean. And they're like... And then Axtrotog is just like, oh, you know, I am tog But I, I I, have the wing right here. I can heal her up. And you, and you didn't mention, you know, you would marry anybody who could heal her. So I, I'm going to marry her, I guess, because I can heal her. So he literally goes in, like, puts her wing back somehow, I think. And then, like, they end up getting married and she gets pregnant and... And then she's almost about to give birth and they're like, we should probably go back to your place because in Asetian tradition, there's this big thing where like men can't live with their wives because that, that is so looked down upon. And to live with your wife gives you the name of Midagmoy, which essentially translates to a domesticated man because you don't want to be domesticated. You want to be a warrior who's outside doing things. But, and so if you're domesticated, that means you're doing all the housework, you're helping your wife out with chores. And what kind of man would you be if you actually did stuff in your house and not go out hunting or fighting? Like, come on. This isn't toxic patriarchy at all.
0: Speaking of, another interesting note that the uh, book puts here. Here we go. Up until the 19th century, Assyrians had a domestic tradition according to which the wife of a deceased husband wed an unmarried member of his family, most usually a brother. In this case, it was Warcock because... His brother was dead. Akshartag's widow married Akshartag's father, uh, which. Yeah, I was going to
1: mention that in that part of the book.
0: Sounds very strange, but apparently this was custom. And the exploitation was it. This custom was maintained because of an enormous erad, or bride price, which was demanded right up until the October Revolution in Naceria. By keeping the dead man's wife in the family, they thus preserved a useful worker in the home. And avoided having to pay colossal sums for a bride from another family so this is just like you said it's another example of the dominance of men in Ossetian traditional society women are treated more or less as resources which one cannot afford to lose that's that's a
1: that's a horrible mentality but this is the culture that we're kind of looking at and like in like small remote mountain villages you can still see this like whole bride price thing still being a thing and they still practice this stuff because that's the thing about the caucuses is it's hard to root out some things when they're in the mountains and you can't get to them so but just kind of continue on with the rest of the story Akshar Tog gets married to Zarasha and, and at this point when Akshar Tog left he told Akshar to wait for a year and Warcog is like oh my gosh my sons are gone I haven't seen them in forever because they're like they were supposed to guard the tree and then they disappear so Warcog's like, oh my god, they're dead!
0: Fantastic job! Not only did you let a bird get the apple, you were gone for years.
1: You literally gone for a year. Did not tell their dad anything, and then like just leading on to part five of this book, Akshar, Tog, and and Zirashav, You know, they come up to the surface. Akshar is you know he's gone hunting because he's like, oh you know, it's my brother should be back up because the. The, the sea foam turned white. So that meant my brother's coming back and he's fine. And he goes out to go hunting get, to get some meat for for, for them all to celebrate. Oxar Tog is like, oh, I'm going to go hunting to wait for my brother. And they completely bypass each other because they probably went off in like different directions. And Akshar returns back to his tent. And Zarasha's is like, oh my gosh, my husband's back. Because Akshar Tog is probably an idiot didn't tell her.
0: Akshar's my exact twin brother.
1: It's a real soap opera situation
0: with the identical twins being confused for each other.
1: Yeah, they were being confused for each other. is trying to cuddle up and you know be loving towards Akshar, who and Akshar is like rejecting her, He's like this is my brother's wife. I'm not gonna touch her. And then Akshar decides, I'm gonna go to sleep, wait for my brother. Zarasha is just offended at the fact that like Akshar has rejected her because she thinks it's Akshar Tog. And then Akshar Tag returns and he sees his wife completely, like, annoyed and, like, upset at Akshar. And he's like, Akshar must have touched her. He must have done something for her. And then he points his bow up to the heavens and goes, may my arrows smite him where exactly where he touched her. And then he loses his arrow and hits him right in his little pinky. Because it was kind of like, he was probably like, no, get away. And Aks- must have, like, slightly touched her. Gets, dies from the pinky. So I'm like, that must have been, like, his Achilles heel. Or, you know, his Achilles pinky.
0: Because he dies instantly.
1: He dies instantly. And then Zarash is like, oh my god, let me explain the whole situation to you. And he's like, oh my gosh, I did the horrible thing. And then literally puts his sword against his brother and falls on his sword. And Zarash is like, oh my god, this is all my fault. And I'm like, no, it's probably Akshartog's fault for not thinking you did things through yet again. Because as we mentioned... He just likes to let loose his arrow all the freaking time. And essentially at that point, Zarasha starts lamenting. And then you get Wash who is actually Saint George.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he is.
1: Yes, Wash is Saint George, according to like the research I did. And he's essentially coming down, he goes to, like Zarasha. If I help bury these two twins, you must marry me.
0: Yeah, very pious of him.
1: Very pious of him. It's like you must marry me cuz apparently St. George is very horny. <laughs> and he essentially goes, "Okay." And then he buries them and she's like, "Okay, no, let me go wash up cuz I'm covered in blood." And then she escapes back to her homeland. And then like she gets closer and closer to being to giving birth, and then her mom is like, "You need to go back because then your sons won't be narcs they'll be they will be born in their own land which is looked really down upon too so she returns There's this whole ordeal about her not talking to anybody because she just won't be like she can only talk to a certain person and and then like the elders like the elder lady comes to her and is like you know you need to answer our questions she says oh i'm carrying akshar tag's kids and they're like let's put you in akshar tag's bastion and she's like no 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 just put me at the bottom level because the bottom level at these, like, because they live in towers. I'll probably put some, put some pictures of anything I can find. Um, and essentially, like, the bottom level is, for like, for cattle and, like, for domestic goods. And then, like, the everything in between the cattle, the the, the ground floor and the top floor is for, like, living quarters. And then the top floor is an observation deck. So the, so these usually range from, like, four to seven stories in height. And they're, like, conical in design. So she's like, no, no, with me about to give birth, it's going to be really hard to get up and down those stairs, probably. Or that ladder. So she's like, let me give birth on the ground floor. And then she gives birth to her two sons, who are also twins, Uri Shmad and Hamis. And that is another fun story, which we're going to continue with, because it's still part of the arc Warcog and his sons. Would you like to take it off from here, Brendan?
0: Yeah, I just wanted to briefly touch on again, thing about Akshar Tag solving things, uh, attempting to solve things with violence and then having to remedy it. This is the third time it's happened. Get it together. But yeah, I thought it was a really interesting way. The attitude towards violence or the sort of, it's very Greek in a way because these heroes have a virtue being brave or good at violence, which is also their downfall at the same time. It's interesting how different cultures approach that sort of, sort of topic.
1: Yeah, no, it's just kind of funny. Cause it's like, they, they all have their downfall. Like Jason was very, like, he had a lot of hubris. He was like, yeah, I'm going to marry this princess and be the king. You know, I'll be, I'll be an inherited king. And Medea basically is like, no, you're not. Like, you're married to me. I'm going to take you down because you are supposed. You said you're going to be with me forever. I literally killed my family for you. And, like, and your cousins.
0: Yeah, and it's Medea's treachery that helps Jason out of the situation. But when he crosses her, Medea's treachery ends up with his downfall.
1: Yeah, but like in this case, it's the fact that Akshar and Akshar Tag are essentially...
0: Not to say that Jason doesn't deserve it.
1: Oh, Jason totally deserves it. I will say that to the end of my days. I hate Jason so much.
0: Well, he's in hell. That's good.
1: Yes. And just to kind of continue on is Akshar and Akshar Tag, they really don't do anything bad, except they don't think, which I think is the worst thing they do. It's just like, they're so proud to be warriors and great with their bows is that they just don't think about the things that they're doing ahead of time. Because how many things could have, in this story could have been solved with talking? You know, they. to be fair, two of them were shooting down Zarasha with a, with a bow and arrow. It was kind of called for because they were guarding the apple tree. But, like, shooting his aunt in the eye and then killing his brother without asking him what was going on is like, hey, these are two times you injured your family because you didn't think things through. And I think that was, like, essentially tog being an idiot because you know his he's the boldest. The boldest doesn't mean the smartest.
0: Yeah, which is fundamentally this is uh well, I'll actually I'll say this point for the end, but yeah, the point again is something I think that is not like too we talk about virtues and vices as if they're separate things most often. This is simply how our culture compartmentalizes those things. Here it's the same thing is simultaneously a virtue and a vice. Which is bravery, a skill with a bow, things that you know are good for hunting and war, and things that you need to survive in the Ossetian culture. Yeah, are things that also bring their downfall. It's it's an approach that's really refreshing because it doesn't deny the uh, moral complexity of heroes. You know, many Greek heroes are very unheroic sometimes, like Jason, for example. Oh God, he
1: is so unheroic.
0: Mm-hmm. But and but our our heroes are like like Superman is. No matter what happens, he's the big blue boy scout. That's not what heroes are like in these cultures. They
1: are warriors through and through. Like, they will fight things, they will kill things, mm-hmm. and they're going to shoot before they talk, you know? Shoot first, yeah. ask questions later.
0: Yeah, they fight even and especially when it's unwise. Exactly. And just to
1: kind of continue on, um, then you have Zarasha Zer- gives birth to her twin sons, Urishmag and Khamis, who essentially have the exact same thing? They grew up with within days, which I mean, this is explained with the fact that they are the child of a goddess. So I was like, that makes more sense to me than Akshar and Akshatag is being born out of the blue with no named mother, and they just grow up in like days. Urjmag and Hamis are essentially tyrants, just like their father was, and they are shooting things left and right. Um, there's this seer woman who essentially has a daughter, and she asks the daughter, hey, go get some water. And then the twins end up shooting a, the vase and shattering it, and then she's like, oh, my gosh.
0: And Tora dressed to pieces.
1: Yeah, they breaks it to pieces, and then she goes back, and then her mom's like, you drank my breast milk. You can literally tell them off as much as possible. You have my words in you. Then she goes off and It's like, oh, you... She's like, oh, you know, you guys are so mean. Like, you guys can shoot me who's weaker than a bird but you can't even take care of your own granddad who's out in the woods by himself. And like, and then, yeah. And then it's a pretty good burn. Which It is a great burn. I'm like, let me see if I can find it here. How easy it is to test your strength out on me. Shouted the girl. Any little bird of the forest is stronger than I, but if you're a bold young fellow, better go and find your old grandfather, Warcog, who has withered away, wandering after the Nart's cattle. And like, the boys are so offended that they broke their bows and their arrows and like go after their mom and like, we know where our grandfather is. We're going to look for him now. We know he's alive. And then like they go look for him and then like they find him all like bedraggled like his he hasn't shaven in weeks and everything. Warcog is like, I don't believe you're my grandsons. Let me touch you. And like, you know, i mean, touch your elbows and knees to make sure that you are does so. and like, oh my gosh, you are my grandsons. And then the boys are like, hey, grandpa, can you pee for us?
0: Wait, did they say that? Hold
1: on. Essentially, they're
0: like, you know... Oh, right. Yeah, Yeah. they're
1: literally like, hey, Grandpa, can you pee for us? And then, like, like his stream, you know, it arced upward and he's like, oh, my gosh, Grandpa has a lot of vigor in his system still. He should marry our mother, which actually goes back to the point that you made earlier, was the fact that usually mothers tend to, like... If if a woman is widowed, uh, she has to marry someone within her husband's family who is a bachelor, and that way she can stay with the family... And it's all going on, but instead, she's like, you know, she's literally marrying her father-in-law, and and the father and Warcog adopts Urijmag as his like children, essentially at this point.
0: Right, um, and there's one line here that I wanted to point out. Urimog and Kames came up to the old man and embraced him, and then Warcog fell silent. While the tips of his fingers, he felt their wrists and knee joints. Tears began to flow from his eyes. My sons Akshar and Akshar Tag have perished. But I am happy that our breed has not passed away. Thus, he recognized his grandsons. And I think this is fundamentally the structure of the story, which is it's a story about how two great warriors and how their family are repeatedly separated and reunited so the brothers are separated from their father and then from each other when they go off in their great adventure they're reunited with their long-lost aunt which they probably weren't even aware of apparently otherwise i think i think their father would have told you know hey uh your aunt lives in a hole in the ground that glows yeah but like they they don't mention that all that stuff
1: but anyways it's kind of like Zara, and at the end showed literally marries Warcog, and that is the end of part mm-hmm. one which I'm not going to get further into because I haven't read past that. So neither have I, um, yes, you have. No, I have not Oh, really?
0: I seriously haven't. Oh no, I have not Okay.
1: I'm... I've been reading Night in the Panther skin. Okay. Let's continue on. And I think that is actually it for the discussion. Cause we are hitting the hour mark. It might seem shorter for you guys after I edit stuff. Cause we had a lot of side tangents that make no sense to anyone else, but Brendan and I. So it was a pleasure having you guys listen to us kind of, talk about Warcock and his sons, and just kind of pick up on the themes that we saw. Brendan, as always, does a great job of picking up all the stuff, and I am great to just add funny commentary and just kind of listen to everything. But thank you, Brendan, for coming on today.
0: Thank you very much, Roberto.
1: And I can't wait to see you for the first year anniversary of the show. I can't wait to see you. See you then. All right. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. To support us, feel free to look us up on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram as The History of Sacadillo, Georgia, on Twitter at History underscore Georgia, on our website at History or on our email at The History of Georgia at Gmail dot is spelled S A Q A R T V E L O. For more direct support, you can buy us a coffee. The link is in the episode transcription and on our website. Our Amazon wishlist is also available if you'd like to purchase a book for us. Also, a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast host goes a long way with getting the word out about the show and helping us reach new people to learn about Georgia. Madlaba Nachfamdis, and thank you for listening to The History of Sacavillo, Georgia. See
0: you next time.